Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Good morning, Vietnam. I've always wanted to say that. I'm broadcasting today from a great restaurant, Lubu. It's in District 2 um, in Ho Chi Minh City and uh, thoroughly enjoying it. So if you're heading this way, make sure you go to Lubu, L-U-B-U. It, it is great. Had um, had dinner here last night and sat here until midnight or so. It's 7 a.m. in the morning now and uh, sat here until midnight or so having a few drinks and and some great food. So if you're heading towards Ho Chi Minh City, look up Lubu. It's it's really terrific. I want to thank you for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. I really do appreciate it. Don't take anything for granted. That's why we get up at some ungodly hour of the morning to broadcast from Vietnam. Now, the best companies in the world to work for was announced last week. And it further highlights the gap between technology companies and the old legacy companies. It really demonstrates why legacy companies are finding it difficult to attract staff. So the top 10 companies in the world to work for, in order, are Google, Salesforce, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Uber, Microsoft, Twitter, and Airbnb. You might have noticed that they are all the new digital companies, technology companies. Now, Google's moving 2,500 of its staff into a new London office. And uh, in keeping with its ranking as the number one company in the world to work for, the office has got a 90-meter running track. The, The staff is get free healthy food, they get massages, they have gyms, they even get cookery classes from a chef that worked with Jamie Oliver. And uh, black metal beams, they give it a sort of a really industrial feel and it uh, reflects the proximity to nearby King's Cross train station. The roof terraces are amazing. The views from the top are just extraordinary and they offer stunning views right across London. They come with sun lounges and gardens that will no doubt make for a very pleasant outdoor dining experience on your free food. There's an underground passage that Google staff can take from King's Cross St Pancras to their new office. The um, interior was designed with um, plenty of communal areas to facilitate, you know, when you have those chance encounters between engineers working on different projects. Google believes that these areas with intermingling of talent fuel what they call engineering serendipity. And the luxury lounge areas give Google staff the opportunity to chill out on Vitra sofas that can cost up to $25,000 each, or they can take a nap in one of the Metro nap, nap pods, which cost about 8000 bucks each. How many other companies let you go and sleep on the job and then give you free coffee and a massage to do it? <laughs> right, got me. Um, there's barista stations right across the whole building, and this free coffee is provided 24 hours a day. And when you look at the inside of the building, it's got these unbelievable curvy staircases. They've got to be seen to be believed, and they're the real focal point of the building. And one of the rooms in the new Google office block, which I love, is called Platform 9 and 3 quarters after the J.K. Rowling Harry Potter train platform that the Hogwarts students used to board the Hogwarts Express at King's Cross. Now, that's pretty cool, I reckon. All of the desks can be raised, allowing Google staff to either sit or stand if they want to. And Google staff can take the Eurostar from 
pretty much below the office to Brussels and Paris in about two hours. So you go and stock up on your free coffee and free lunch, have a massage, go downstairs, jump on a train, two hours later in the middle of Paris. Now, that's a job that I want. Um, I must admit, I've got a 10-foot by 7-foot spa outside my office door, but that's the extent of it. If I want a coffee, I've got to make it myself. And um, I'd always thought that the Red Bull head office in Santa Monica, California, it is really cool. It's got the big skate ramps that go right through the whole building and it's got gyms and it's got baristas everywhere and massaging. It's very, very cool. Um, but the um, Google office sounds way cooler, if that's a word. There's big changes coming in food. Patrick Brown is the founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, which is a Redwood City, California-based startup that creates plant-based meat and cheese substitutes. And its, its first product is called the Impossible Burger, and it's set to launch a little bit later this year. Now, um, Patrick's a professor of biochemistry at Stanford, and uh, he picked the most important problem in the world to work on, which is how do we feed our people and pollution, and decided that the biggest threat to the global environment right now was the use of animals for food. So he developed a um, plant-based meat and developed Impossible Foods. It's not just a bunch of vegetables that are all mushed together. Impossible Foods has created a plant-based burger that looks like a burger. It smells like a burger. It sizzles like a burger. And it tastes exactly like beef. And uh, Brown says his company will be able to make any of the foods that we currently derive from animals, like cheese, milk, bacon, pork, steak, and chicken and make it all directly from plants with exactly the same taste. And because the food's made directly from plants, they have no cholesterol, no hormones, no antibiotics, and no chance of being contaminated by um, bacteria from a slaughterhouse. So that's all very cool. They're not the only people in the game. Um, there's a company called, uh, I'm just trying to remember, Hampton Creek, and there's another one called beyond meat I think and they believe that raising animals for food is a very inefficient destructive and unnecessary technology one of the um, most threatening environmental harms to our safety is meat production specifically beef and pork and feedlots single-handedly are doing as much if not more damage to our environment and the water supply than fracking you know, and I'm totally against fracking, but apparently uh, feedlots are doing more damage than fracking. And, of course, methane released by cattle is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And then on top of that, if you're a caring sort of a person, then uh, there's the animal, animal rights issues, which are just enormous. You know, we see lots of uh, shows about... Um, people who take care of animals, but there are a hell of a lot of people who don't. So um, now Impossible Burger, their main sources of proteins are wheat, potato, soy and yeast, and the major fat source is coconut. Add in some plant-derived fibres and micronutrients plus a molecule called HEM, H-E-M-E, that gives it its meaty characteristics, and you've got yourself... The Future Burger. And it, people say it's fantastic. And um, um, Bill Gates has stuck a whole truckload of money in it. So I think they've raised about $180 million, I think, which is a fair bit of dough. So the burger's not on the market yet, but it will be by 2016. They reckon they're going to sell it for approximately the same price as organic beef but they think that in a couple of years they'll be able to sell it at a similar price to normal beef. Now, if you've just tuned in, I'm broadcasting from Lubu, which is a great restaurant in District 2 of Ho Chi Minh City, and they've just brought me a beautiful coffee 
So the next sound you hear will be me slurping on the coffee. Now, ultimately, that wasn't bad, was it? Ultimately, Brown um, wants to reach a scale where plant-based meat can be sold in the developing world for lower prices as they produce more and get more efficient. Price will come down. Google tried to buy Impossible Foods for $300 million last year and Eric Schmidt just named fake meat as one of the top technologies that's going to change the world in the next five years. Brown wants to create plant-based solutions for everything that tastes good. I think that's fantastic. I love it. Now, how often do you get called on to fill in one of those bloody annoying customer satisfaction surveys. They drive me crazy, those things, and they're useless, absolutely useless. Um, you know, quite often you just fill them in because there's a freebie. You know, fill this in and you get a 1,000 extra miles or fill this in and you get a free fries or something. Well, guess what? Most people are doing the same thing and the information they get is just useless i mean if, if you you take people that normally stay at uh, an intercontinental hotel and you ask them what they think of a, um, a travel lodge they're going to say it's crappy um but it still might be good for that market or vice versa you get somebody who normally stays at a travel lodge put them up in a hilton and they're going to say absolutely fantastic but it may not be fantastic at all by comparison with its competitors. So it's a complete waste of time and money. And in the US, it seems that every organization's following following the leader with these inane surveys. The latest fad is to initiate surveys with, with every transaction 100% of the time. Every time you do anything, you fill out a bloody survey. <coughs> And very few customers fill out the survey, and if they do, it depends on what that freebie is at the end. And the one that really annoys me is when you get on the phone to your credit card company or your bank, and it doesn't matter, you might have a really big problem, and you're really pissed off at this bank, and they say, would you mind hanging on, after we finish this call, would you mind hanging on for a couple of minutes to fill in, a, to complete a survey? Well, no, I don't want to. I hate you bastards. That's why I'm ringing you. And how many times do you say on the line to take the survey? And if you're like the vast majority of people, you just hang up. Now, why should I spend a couple of minutes of my life talking to people at a bank and giving them survey results when they don't give a rats about me? I mean, the bank doesn't give a damn whether you bank with them or not. And the airlines are the same. You know, you can be, I'm a, um, I've flown about five million miles or five and a half million miles or something like that with United, but do they care that I exist? No. If I leave them tomorrow, do they give a damn? No. Would they miss me? No. But hang on the line a minute, Mr. Pritchard. We value your business and please complete a survey. Well, screw you. And um, firms in the US, you know, they like to copy everybody. Remember it was a cool thing to save money and they outsourced your call centre to India and you phone up and you can't understand the person, and they say, good afternoon, what's the weather like? You know, and I don't want to deal with those people. They don't understand my issues at all. All they do is take the message, whatever it is, and it goes into a bin, and nobody ever takes any notice. You know, having call centers in India is one of the most stupid decisions that companies ever made. It's, and it's so annoying. Would you mind repeating that, please? I don't understand your accent. Uh, could you just speak slower, please? I mean, that is drives you bonkers. 
it's it, it's very difficult to find any companies in the US that are not surveying their customers constantly. Now, Amazon, which is the customer service leader in the US and in the world, is phenomenal. Their customer service is unbelievable. Do they outsource calls to India? No. And they grew 26% last year to $107 billion in revenue. That's $2 billion a week. Or put another way, $2,000 million every week. And they're not dumb enough to have call centers in bloody India. I'm not knocking India. It's just, if you're going to have call centers, have them in the US. And years ago, people had customer comment cards. They stopped using them because everybody knew that nobody ever read the bloody things. And around, I think, 1981, Target had customer comment cards where the results were really bad. So what do you do when your results are really bad with your customer comment cards? You change the questions so you get better answers. You don't fix the problem. You just change the survey. How bloody annoying or ridiculous is that? So if you want to survey your customers, survey one out of ten. It'll be a lot more meaningful. And the process being used today is increasing the friction with customers you know, people get annoyed with you. It increases transaction times, upsets the customers, damages your brand, your image, and your sales. So spend some of your customer service money developing your leadership teams and your workforce to deliver superior customer service. If you have a look at all the companies that give phenomenal customer service, they are the leaders in every category and you know surveys show that customer service leaders can charge between nine and let nine and thirteen percent more for their products than their competitors so there's a, a million incentives to give people better service so don't follow this customer comment trend because at some point Customers are going to get so browned off, they will leave. Now, today's guest is a really good friend of mine, Ken Cragen. And Ken um, has managed some of the world's most important entertainers, including Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, Trisha Yearwood, Livy Newton-John, the Bee Gees, and a whole heap of others. He was around with the with the Rat Pack, with Sinatra and, and Lawford and, and Sinatra and and uh, he organised a re historic recording session, We Are The World, which everybody remembers. And uh, he organised that in just 28 days to fight starvation in Africa. He created Hands Across America, which was a continuous line of five million people holding hands right across the United States from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean, raising funds and awareness for poverty. He is an extraordinary guy, this guy. And he's lovely. And he's one of the few private citizens to receive the prestigious United Nations Peace Medal. And he's also won MTV Awards and Grammy nominations and International City of, um, Citizen of the Year Award, American Music Awards. This guy has won everything. You'll find him very interesting. And I'll be back with Ken Cragen immediately after this break on the Voice America Business Channel. And I'm coming to you from Lubu restaurant in division two in ho chi minh city i'll be back with you in just a moment do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible bob pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight talking troubleshooter for fortune 500 companies and smes across the world whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. 
Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Now, this is the part of the show where we talk to extraordinary people, people that have enjoyed great success and that are making a difference. Today's guest is a great friend of mine and an absolute legend. The things that Ken Cragen has achieved in his life to date are really unbelievable. And he's still going strong. There are some amazingly talented people in this world, and I, I love to speak with them because there's so much that they can teach us. And uh, Ken still does um, courses, which I'll tell you a bit more about later, but he's, he's teaching people every day. And my aim in these interviews is to find out what the characteristics are that these people have that makes them great and how each of us can learn from the lessons they teach us. Fasten your seatbelts because this guy is something else. Ken Cragen is a graduate of UC Berkeley and Harvard Business School. His unbelievable career has touched on nearly every aspect of the music and entertainment business. He's managed some of the world's most important entertainers, including Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, Trisha Yearwood, Olivia Newton-John, the Bee Gees, and a bunch of others. He has a belief that it's much easier to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Most of us strive to do the ordinary, and that's what makes a huge difference and what makes Ken what he is. This belief has enabled him to organise the historic recording session We Are The World in just 28 days to fight starvation in Africa. He created Hands Across America, a continuous line of 5 million people, holding hands from the Pacific to the Atlantic Ocean, raising funds and awareness for poverty in the US. Think of that. Organising... Most of us have trouble organising a dinner party. This guy organises five million people to be at the same place, the same time, to link hands across America. That is amazing. He also staged NetAid, which was an unprecedented global charity event merging Cisco Systems Technology with the United Nations War on Poverty. He also played an important role in the original Live Aid with his friend Quincy Jones, staged part of the 1992 presidential inauguration of President Bill Clinton. He's one of the few private citizens to receive the prestigious United Nations Peace Medal, as well as two MTV awards, several Grammy nominations, the International Citizen of the Year Award, Ebony's Black America Achievement Award, and an American Music Award. Phew! Ken's the author of the best-selling book, Life is a Contact Sport. He's lectured at many schools, including USC, University of Tennessee, Harvard Business School, and each year teaches the highly popular Stardom Strategies for Musicians. It's a course at UCLA's Herb Alpert School of Music. One of the great things about Ken is the amount of work that he does for charities. Uh, Ken's a consultant for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation the renowned Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a major fundraising project called Rally Song 100. Ken's about to co-host a new TV show called Inside Music. He's got two other TV projects in development and he's writing a book called Doing Well by Doing Good with Tony Robbins. Well, it's not a bad 
<laughs> I mean, most of us would be absolutely thrilled to bits with one fraction of that. But, you know, one of the things that Ken emphasises that I love about him and, and people like him is that um, they give back to the community. The community's been so good to them, they give back. And I'd love to see more entrepreneurs and more entertainers giving a lot more back to the community. Hi, Ken. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. So I guess I have to retire after that introduction. Mate, <laughs> My God. Yeah, that's, that's more than most people achieve in about 10 lifetimes. The funny thing is, Bob, I currently have probably 12 different projects going. It's just kind of amazing. Uh, it's fun, you know. I never want to stop. Uh, you know, my dad taught until he was 87 at UC Berkeley in the law school and chaired committees to 95 and died in his sleep just before 98. And uh, I, I think he never regretted uh, being that excited about what he does. It's one of the things I teach, you know, get do things that you're passionate about. Do the things that you really, truly care about, and you'll never feel like you worked a day in your life. Is it is it bred into are people born with this attitude, or can you develop it? I mean, I wake up in the morning and I'm bubbly and feel great, and I'm excited about tackling the day. You know, I get high on fresh air. You know, I've never touched drugs or anything in my life. I just I'm just happy about being able to do new stuff. It, and you're you're obviously got that in spades so are we born with it or well, can you know, anybody do it you know i i really you know i have 143 students at ucla in my class and i really try to bring home to them in the 10 weeks that they're with me the idea of that word i just mentioned earlier passion that they got that you know it's that old thing you probably heard it many times before find something that you're passionate about that you love doing you know, and yep. whether it pays you a dime, you'll get up every day excited to go to work. Yeah. And I, I really think that um, that's the key to it. I I try to find projects constantly uh, through a whole variety of areas and concepts that I have fun with, that I enjoy, that I'm excited about, that I can get up in the morning and hardly get to, you know, wait to get to. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I, I ignore family or friends or even taking vacations, but it, it means that I'm engaged in everything I do. I have fun with everything I do. Well, there's a lot of discussion these days about the fact that half the people in the top um, 100 most successful people in the world didn't go to college or did, certainly didn't finish college and yet have been enormously successful. Um, you're a graduate of Harvard Business School and yet you end up managing entertainers for much of your career. So did that master's degree help you or could you have started four years earlier? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was, I was offered a job just before I went off to Harvard Business School to produce concerts for a group called the Kingston Trio turned out within months after that they had the number one record in the country and sold out everywhere they were the original kind of touring folk group you know i remember but, them well <laughs> yeah and i hated to turn it down it wasn't a job managing people it was a job uh producing their concerts because i had produced the first concerts for them when i was at berkeley at uc, yeah. UC berkeley but my dad, who was a you know a dean of students and professor at UC Berkeley, said to me, "Look, if you don't go to Harvard Business School now, you've been accepted. If you don't go now, you'll never go back, and you'll really miss out. And uh, take the next two years, go there, and and get a master's degree, and you won't regret it." And I went off to to Harvard. Uh, and quickly thereafter felt I'd made a big mistake because the Kingston Trio became the hottest <laughs> uh, band in the country. But, but you know, when I got out of Harvard, this is the interesting part of that. I got out of Harvard, and I, and I actually started managing a group right away. They came to me asking me to be their executive secretary, and I boldly said I'm not... I didn't spend a couple of years here to be an executive secretary. Uh, if you want a manager, call me. And they did. And I started managing this group. But I found very quickly that I had to bury the fact in those early years that I was a Harvard Business School graduate, that the music industry, which was not corporate in the sense it is nowadays or yep. for many years now, the music industry looked, particularly the performers, looked down on me if they found out I had that kind of educational background. Sure. So I kept it literally a secret 
for basically 20 years. Wow. I mean, you know, I, I never touted it. It was never the first thing on my resume like it is now. And then, interestingly, in 1979 or 80, I was um, in a meeting with Lee Iacocca, uh, you know, the former yep. head of Chrysler, sort of the guru in business, the number one spectacular. He was at that time the hottest man in the industry, in, in, in any yep. industry. Sure, that's true. And I was in a meeting with him, with Kenny Rogers and his wife and myself. We had just made a million-dollar deal with Dodge, and um, all the questions were going and being directed at Kenny. Right. And every question, and even if he didn't know the answer, he was trying to answer it. <laughs> and suddenly a question came up that Kenny couldn't answer. And uh, Iacocca's number two guy at Chrysler turned to him and said, I think Ken Cragen ought to answer that. You know, he's a Harvard Business School graduate. It was like a light went off in the room. Yeah. All of a sudden, every question was being directed at me. Yeah. And when I went down in the elevator afterwards, suddenly one of Iacocca's men came to me and said, could we have your card? Mr. Iacocca wants to stay in touch with you. And I became friends with him. And from that day on, the concept of Harvard Business School and the fact that I was a graduate of it became actually a calling card for me because, and the difference was that industry had started to get actively involved in the entertainment field. Right. The Rolling Stones did a commercial for Budweiser, yep. which was a huge breakthrough. No groups had done that. Yep. And all of a sudden it became a strong point. And, you know, nowadays, it, as I said, it's one of the first things that I try to get out there. Although, you know, I do, I want to add, add one more thing. I don't ever try and, I really try hard never to think of myself as a big deal. Sure, I've done some big things and I've been very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and then take advantage of the opportunity. But I think the best thing probably that I can point to in my life is that I never look at myself and say, oh my God, you know, you're some big deal. You did all these things. It, I, I, day to day, I never think that. I've got to say that I find you to be very humble, and I also find you be, to be the first person that jumps in to help anybody with anything. So I'll I'll, in, I'll endorse that. You know, I've got a couple of degrees, and I don't talk about them at all. And to to me now, they seem superfluous. You know, I don't know why I spent all that time. <laughs> now, yeah. let's get to the important thing. Tomorrow is the 30th anniversary of one of the great events of our time. I think the, the musical anthem, We Are The World, that just took the world by storm. It was enormously successful. Nobody had ever done anything like it before. So that's 30 years ago tomorrow. It's, doesn't seem it's hard like to believe, right? No, no, I don't think I've aged a bit. <laughs> no, yeah, mate. You look exact. I was looking through your photos. You know, I see you every week, but I was looking through your photos this morning, and I thought he hasn't changed since his twenties. <laughs> well, it's it's hanging out with a lot of young people, having a young daughter in college, in grad school now, yeah. who's a wonderful filmmaker, and and sticking and teaching young people, and hopefully inspiring them. I think that has a lot to do with it, and then just staying tremendously active, both physically because I work out three, four times a week and walk every day, but also mentally. You know, I yeah. think that's the key to so much nowadays. But anyway, tomorrow is a very, very significant day. Thirty years. Years ago, uh, you know, uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, we, you know, we put together 45 of the biggest artists in the world uh, singing this marvelous anthem that Lionel Richie and, and Michael Jackson wrote uh, with Quincy Jones' spectacular production. Yeah. And the amazing thing is that that song has endured to this day. I mean, the organization we formed then, USA for Africa, is still alive, still going strong. I'm still on the board. Uh, and we still distribute money. We wow. kind of get together as a board group and, and, and chuckle because so many charities are struggling to raise money, and we just keep getting checks coming in. To this day, 30 years later, uh, and we do continue to do good works in Africa. We have practically no overhead. We have one basic employee, uh, and we run a, a very tight ship, and it's been a great organization. Uh, but, you know, the story of that is kind of fun. I think your listeners might... You know, and there's some good lessons from Whose it. Whose idea was um, it initially? Well, what happened was, I have to give all the credit to Bob Geldof in England, 
who right. saw these terrible pictures of children dying in Africa yeah. and organized a group of artists to do a song called Do They Know It's Christmas? And they recorded yes, it yeah. before Christmas, you know, in London uh, with a group. And those same visuals that spurred Bob uh, inspired Harry Belafonte here. They were being, Tom Brokaw insisted that NBC show the same pictures of children dying. There had been kind of a, a, a subtle thing where the networks didn't want to show that kind of thing. They felt sure. it was late night, you know, the Christian sure. Children's Fund or something like that. And they wouldn't show it, but Brokaw got them to show it. Belafonte uh, picked up the phone and called me and said, we've got to do something. Let's do a concert to create um, money for uh, the African effort. Uh, I had been trying to put a concert together for U.S. Hunger for about a year with no luck. And so I said to Harry, look, I don't think we need to look any further than what Geldof just did in England. We've got bigger artists who are selling bigger here than the ones he had on that record, at least most of them. Yeah. Uh, let's do a record. And he said, great, you know, think about it, and I'll call you in a few days. Well, I hung up after literally two hours on the phone with Belafonte. Uh, picked up the phone, asked Kenny Rogers if he'd do, be involved. He said yes. Called two or three mother, of my other clients. I was the perfect guy in the right spot with the right client list, with the right connections, you know, the hottest management company in the business. And I, I drove from there to pick up Lionel Richie to take him to the American Music Awards rehearsal uh, with Dick Clark. Right. And uh, I asked Lionel if he would do the song, if he would write it. I wanted him to write it with Stevie Wonder. Uh, I'd always wanted them to do something together, but Lionel couldn't get Stevie on the phone. In the meantime, I called Quincy, who was getting on a plane, actually. To, it was the day before Christmas, two days before Christmas, really, and um, 1984. And Quincy said, great, I'll do it. I said, well, can you get Michael? And he said, I'll, uh, let me give it a shot. Because Michael was literally the hottest artist in the world. Yeah, Michael absolutely. Jackson. Yeah. So he called me back shortly and said, Michael not only wants to do the song, but he wants to write it with Lionel and Stevie. Only problem was, and this is a fun story, only problem was that Stevie Wonder was unreachable. Lionel tried all night and never got him. Right. But the next morning, the day before Christmas, Lionel's then wife, Brenda, goes into a jewelry store to pick out some gifts. And who walks in but Stevie Wonder? <laughs> And I don't know if he, you know, he couldn't see her, so I don't know if he thought she was, if he knew she was Lionel's wife or if he thought she was an employee, but he asked her to help her, help him pick out some jewelry. Right. And she said, not until you return my husband's call. <laughs> and they got Lionel in a dentist chair. They found Lionel in a dentist chair, and Stevie agreed to write it with Michael and Lionel. Only problem was, Stevie promptly disappeared for a month. Nobody could find him. He'd gone off to Philadelphia over the Christmas holidays. He didn't come back until the day he came to the studio, the night we were recording the demos. The song was already written, although it took Lionel and Michael right down to the wire to get it done. Yeah. But we were doing the demos to send out to the artist, and he walked Stevie Wonder, and he said, okay, let's write the song. And uh, unfortunately, a, a, man, a man who can't see can't see everybody's mouth drop open when he said that. You know, but uh, they sat down, they played him what he what they'd done. He made a few suggestions, and he left. And then we went on to record. And um, but that was one of the many great stories from it. I share one other with you that I think is very important for your listeners. In, in, you know, really, uh, there's a there's an incredible Thornton Wilder quote that I use often and has been an inspiration to me, and it's that every great thing balances at all times on the razor edge of disaster. Yeah. And I found over my career that those crises moments, where the bigger the crises, usually I'm, the more likely I'm on the right track to do something really major. Yeah. And this was the night before the actual recording. Uh, we were doing it on the night of the American Music Awards, so I was at the rehearsal at the Shrine Auditorium here in Los Angeles that night. I was backstage at rehearsal for the American Music Awards. Many of the stars on the awards were going to come the next night to record with us. And I was approached by one of the the major artists' uh, managers, to, a rock artist, saying the rockers don't like the song and they don't want to stand on the stage next to the non-rockers. 
they they felt that the the a pop song like it was uh you know which had not obviously yeah. been accepted the way it had been later by the public yeah. a pop song and these pop artists would somehow diminish the stature the hipness of the rockers so he said we're going to leave and at that point i said look if you're going to leave go i mean there's nothing we can do about it yeah. but i but uh, i said we're going to be there tomorrow night recording what happened next is really pretty amazing they went to bruce springsteen and they asked him to leave with him i don't know how many of them were going to leave yeah. or what all i know is bruce said i'm not going anywhere i came out here to save lives i came out here to feed people and I'm going to be there tomorrow night. That's and they all would have looked, you know. So so Bruce saved the day. He literally saved the day. Lionel Richie has a wonderful line, you are who you hug. Yeah. And they all wanted to hug Bruce Springsteen. So. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's incredible because, you know, most of these people don't have small egos. And to get all of them together and all of them cooperating like that is an extraordinary feat. If, if you ask people, um, do you think it's possible, people would say, no, it's not possible. They're never going to work together. And uh, that's what I think so great about your, um, your quote. It's easier to do the impossible than the ordinary. You know, it, it's dreaming a dream that ordinary people won't dream. Well, you know, the, the thing is, I teach the fact that you cannot sell anything to anybody, whether it's a product, an idea, a company, or yourself. You can't sell anything to anybody unless you get their attention. Yeah. And you can't get their attention unless you do something that's unique or special. Yeah. It's got to have substance to it. Once you get their attention, somebody's got to be willing to take action. And it's got to be unexpected. And in order to be, when you, when you set out to do the ordinary, it's not unique. It may have substance to it, but it's not unique. It's not unexpected. It's been done before, yeah. and people go whole hum. Yeah. When you start out to do the impossible, people go, oh, my God, it's talking about it. Oh, he's never going to do that. I mean, put five million people, and actually it turned out to be almost six and a half totally. People from New York to L.A. holding hands, no way. But once there's a little spark that maybe it's going to succeed, people jump at it because yeah. they know it's something historic. It gets its own. So I, I try to take every project up a level. If I'm meeting with you about a project, I'm trying to find a way to make it bigger than you ever dreamed of, to make it literally on the edge of impossibility, if not almost completely there. So. Are there lessons to be learned from these seemingly impossible projects that the average person can apply to their lives? I mean, the, the average guy that's going out there, or even the average entrepreneur who's got some project that he's working on, um, how does he apply the impossible to his environment? Well, I, you know, there's several lessons out of these things. I think one of the first ones is to stay naive. I just, you know, we all talk about how wonderful it is to keep that childlike quality. The co the concept that you don't know it can't be done. Yeah. You know, yeah. you as far as you're concerned, I once worked for American Aviation, uh, uh, for National Aviation, uh, and we had them. There were there were milling wings to one thousandth of an inch, and they decided for these new planes they needed to do ten times that. They needed to mill. The, the wings to one ten thousandth of an inch. They went to every one of their experienced millers and nobody could do it. They hired a group of people who had never milled before. They taught them that the, the tolerance had to be one ten thousandth of an inch and they did it. They didn't yeah. know it couldn't be done. Yeah. It was a great lesson. And the fact is that I, one of the things I tell people is stay naive. Think big, of course, thinking the idea of taking whatever concepts you're working on. How do you create the wow factor? You know, when I, when I speak, I always have a marching band march through. Yeah. And I get people, and I, and, and I get people's attention that way. When that band leaves, I say, look, where is the marching band and everything you do? Not necessarily the actual band, although sure. be my guest, have them come. But where is your version of the marching band? Where's your wow factor? What is going to get people to pay attention here? 
where and how are you going to get their attention? So the second thing really is try to take whatever you're doing and think, where's the wow factor in this? Where's the marching band in that? I think that's really important. I think it's also extremely important to use music in virtually everything you do. Sure. It's an amazing, you know. You know, I, uh, I, I've heard the quote, uh, it was in the Christian Science Monitor, I can't remember the gentleman who said it, but he said, music is the language we use when we're speechless. And music is the incredible motivator. If you look at every big project I've done, music is somehow involved. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a great force. So those are just some of the things. There are a bunch of lessons from them, but I know we don't have time to go into all of them here. That's very encouraging because if um, being successful comes down to naivety, I should be, oh, any minute now, I should be a massive success. You know, there's one other thing, just in terms of my overall success in my career, one of the things that I have viewed is the concept of reading my gut and my first impression on things yeah. and not talking myself into something that when something comes up I try to react to it as I would if I had nothing to do with it or not involved and see how do I react to that and in, yeah. I've been very lucky that that seems to be the way the general public will react and and I, if I sit around and get talked into it or talk myself into it it's usually the wrong thing to do or talk yourself out of it yeah, well, talking myself out of it is another question. You know, there's always in every project that mo that feeling, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and go, God, are we really going to pull this off? <laughs> and the key is you don't throw the towel in, you know? Yeah, you right. overcome the obstacles. You find a solution. Gosh, I've been there in every project. There's always some moment at which you could just quit. And, but you don't. If you believe strong, if you're passionate about it, if you care, if the cause or the project is worth it, you find a way to make it work. So if, and if your incredible career, I mean, it really is an amazing career. If there's one thing that you can point to that's had a, a, a played a large part in that success, what is it? Well, it's probably partly what I just said, the ability to read my gut, but it's also something that I have tried to teach without much luck, and that is judgment about what, what artists have talent, what, truly, what is truly superstar talent, even when it's at a brand new artist. What is that extra thing, that extra dimension that's going to allow this person, if we do it right, to become a major star or allow this project, if we hang in there and really work hard at it, to be a huge success? It's, it's, it's not that I haven't picked some losers. I have on occasion or some things that didn't happen, but there's always been a good reason. And what I've learned to do is trust my judgment about that extra dimension whether it's managing an artist, which is a big part of my career, or was certainly a big part of my career, or if it's picking the projects to, to really, you know, get behind, uh, I'm always looking for uh, that, that piece that it truly excites me, that gets me, you know, just thinking about all the ways I can make a difference here. Get me, and it's passion. It's back to the first word. You know, and this, by the way, in my class, 10 weeks, every single week, I have some major superstar guest, whether it's Lionel or Quincy or David Foster, the big producer, yeah. or people like that. Uh, Tom, Tom Beers of Fremantle always comes to my class. He's a, he's a great guy. They all he's say, oh, is he? Yeah. Oh, my God. Great guy. Oh, he's... He, some of his quotes in my in my class are some of the best ever. I, I'll share two of them real quick with you. He says, "Even if the even if the mule is dead, keep loading the wagon." <laughs> <laughs> the other one was taught by his he by his, you know he was an actor. Before, now he's the head yeah. of Fremantle. For your yeah. listeners, the person we're talking about basically is the head of Fremantle, which does American Idol, The Voice. Yeah. Is he has 22 shows on the air right now. Yeah. But he was an actor, first and foremost. And when he was an actor, his acting he said to his acting coach, how am I going to deal with all of the difficult, impossible people in this industry? 
And the coach said to him, his coach was a very famous coach in New York, I forgot the name, and he, his coach said to him, hug the cactus and ignore the pricks. <laughs> well, you know, I, I spent um, 20 years as a performer back a long time ago, and um, I, I've come across, you know, the early stages of some superstars in my day, and they always stand out, you know. You, you look at somebody and you say, this person is going to be a star. It's just some sort of inherent quality that they have that 99% of other people don't have. And so I'm one of those people that believes that stars are born. Sure, they get, you know, the more training you've got, the better you are, but they're born. Do you agree with that or not? Yeah, there is an extra dimension to stars. Uh, there's a drive. Sometimes there's a lot of insecurity that drives Absolutely. them too, which is yeah. something that I, you know, as a manager, you always had to deal with. But Very by the way, when we're talking about stars, and this being a business show, you know, the, the, I define stardom uh, as a, in very broad terms. Uh, I tell people you can be a star in whatever you do, yeah. no matter where you are. Think that way. In fact, going way back, one of the most interesting interviews I ever did was with a guy named Hugh Hauser for Entertainment Tonight, way back in the early days of entertainment. And he said to me, why does an entertainer need a manager? He said, you know, a house painter in Des Moines doesn't need a manager. I said, uh, listen, Hugh, I said, let me turn that around on you. I could take the career of a house painter in Des Moines, and I could apply the same principles I have applied to Lionel Richie and and Kenny Rogers and Olivia Newton-John and the other stars that I've managed, those same principles, they wouldn't become the biggest entertainer in Des Moines, they'd become the most successful house painter in Des Moines. Yeah, that's true. Using the same principles. And so, he, anyway, it aired, that, that, that aired on Entertainment Tonight, and the next day I came into my office and my secretary said to me, Ken, you're not going to believe this, but on your desk are 30 calls from house painters in Des Moines. <laughs> I love it. Mate, we're, 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 That's what I really, you know, I had to put up or shut up. That's when I sat down and wrote a book and said this can work for anybody, you know. Yeah. Ken, we're, we're out of time, but thank you very, very much for joining me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. I really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up with you next week. At, I, can't, I can't be at metal this week. I'm down in Argentina for a client, but wow. um, I look forward to catching up with you again the week after next. Now to find Great. Out Have a safe trip, and it's a pleasure. Talk Thank you, you very much. To find out more about Ken, go to Ken Cragen, K-E-N-K-R-A-G-A-N dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel. I'm the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week, we're broadcasting from Lubu, L-U-B-U, which is a great restaurant in District 2 in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And if you want to look it up, it's um, Lubu Restaurant, L-U-B-U Restaurant.com. You definitely should put it on your bucket list. Now, the Hyperloop, I love the Hyperloop. I've been a great supporter for years now, and it may be coming to Russia as well as a number of other international cities. Hyperloop One has just signed a deal with the city of Moscow to help Russians commute more quickly. The company, along with um, the Russian investment firm Suma Group, has signed a deal with the city of Moscow to explore building a Hyperloop connecting to Moscow's transportation grid. Now, Hyperloop can improve life dramatically for the 16 million people in the greater metropolitan area. It's a hell of a place to get around. I don't know whether you've been there, but 
the traffic is a nightmare. Um, it's much worse than Los Angeles. It's it's dreadful. And uh, the Hyperloop could cut their commute time to a fraction of what it is now. And the longer-term vision is to work with Russia to implement a transformative new Silk Road, a cargo Hyperloop that whisks freight containers from China to Europe in one day. Fantastic. The, the Hyperloop containers are twice the size of the commuter vehicles and they carry an enormous amount of cargo and they do it at seven or 800 miles an hour. So Los Angeles-based Hyperloop 1 is um, working to develop Hyperloop technology. It's got feasibility studies underway around the world, including Switzerland, the United Kingdom, Dubai, Finland, Sweden, <coughs> excuse me, and the Netherlands, as well as the Port of Los Angeles. Now, the company tested its propulsion system on a test track in Vegas in May. You probably saw it on the news and uh, we'll have a full-scale version by the end of this year. It is phenomenal. And why countries are still talking about putting in traditional rail lines and, and things like the Schenkerschen is absolutely beyond me, however. I guess governments always know what they're doing. Now, teams regularly check different apps to stay up to date on current offence, and I think this is a major worry. Um, research shows that teens aged 13 to 18, who are part of Generation Z, are spending nearly nine hours a day consuming entertainment and news media online. So rather than getting balanced news, they're checking certain apps where the news has been pre-selected for them. The majority of teams rely on Snapchat and Twitter. So not surprisingly, they don't read the newspaper. Young people rank lowest among daily newspaper readers. What is scary, I reckon, is that 30% of users use the app as their primary means of getting information about the 2016 presidential campaign. Jeez. So you get such a brief headline and you don't get any of the body copy which tells you what the real situation is. And last week, the Pew Research Centre released their annual State of the News Media report and the major trends, well, they're not surprising, they're depressing, but they're not surprising. Newspapers are dying. Millennials get all their information from their phones. And, uh, you know, the well-established companies now are trying to be hip, the legacy companies, by coming out with chatbots. They're also trying to get away from their traditional names in attempt to feel to seem more relevant and cool. For example, Chicago-based Tribune Publishing, one of the most storied media companies in the United States has been around forever. And uh, been back, I think they go back something like 120 years. They've announced one of the most puzzling corporate rebranding schemes in recent memory. From now on, they're going to be called Tronk. God. Um the major trend in the twelve in the last twelve months, the newspapers are down seven percent. Cable TV's up eight percent, which surprises me. Morning news is down two percent. Not that there's real morning news on the on the networks; they just drivel. Evening news is up one percent. Well, that's good news because most evening news aren't bad. Late night TV viewership's down five percent, and. Um, Viewership's down 2% in the morning and 2% in early evening viewership. So it's pretty dismal. And in the newspaper business, journalists put in time and effort to create meaningful content to keep the public informed. Publishers take money from advertisers so they can pay the bills to provide the service. And advertisers get their names out in front of the public. Then all of a sudden, Facebook comes along. Friends post a bunch of news or stories 
24-7 from all over the world that they think you should know about. Then, of course, you click on them. The publisher gets a visit, and then everybody goes about their day. So it's pretty dismal. Next week, I'll be broadcasting again from Ho Chi Minh City. And remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope and are not living on the edge, then you're taking up far too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week, when I will again be broadcasting from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.